Welcome to Catching Cowboys. Join Dr. Muji, a psychology professor at the University of Ohio, and her daughter, Iyabode, a research scientist in California, on a journey of how to make the most of what life throws your way. We hope to make today's podcast as informative and lighthearted as possible. So sit back and join us on this adventure. Before we get started, if you have your own comments or questions, remember to send them to catchingcurveballs at gmail.com or DM us at Catching Curveballs Podcast on Instagram. And if you like what you hear, remember to rate, review, and tell your friends, family, and coworkers to listen. Hi, mom. How are things? Hello, my daughter. Things are going smoothly. How are you? All good on this end. Another day, another episode. Beautiful. Today, I want to share a study that was recently highlighted in The Guardian. Did you know that hesitating before you answer a question may increase the chance that other people will think you are lying? The longer people take to respond to questions, the more likely other people will perceive them as lying. Whether the questions are about something as severe as a crime or as simple as the baking skills of friends. According to psychologists, aside from volume, tenure, and the pitch of an answer, response time also seems to play a role in the way people view the sincerity of answers. When the answer to a question is, however, socially undesirable, response time does not seem to matter. For example, if people accuse you of having stolen money and you say yes, that's a socially undesirable response. It has a cost for you, so other people are going to interpret your response as sincere. The researchers also found that if people thought a slower response was due to mental effort, for instance, having to think back if you had stolen candy a decade ago, the response speed was less relevant. Other factors such as nervousness or being thoughtful could also explain a delayed response according to the researchers. These findings could have implications for many situations, such as job interviews and court trials, where people expect that other people will make judgments on sincerity. So the takeaway here seems to be that we all just need to answer quickly. Regardless of what you're going to say, just start talking and keep your voice calm. I would hope that in most cases, people are understanding enough that others need time to gather their thoughts especially when it's during a job interview or even in court. Actually, especially in court, I think there's flexibility in judging response time because the response someone gives is extremely important. But I'm also terrible at judging when someone's lying, so I shouldn't actually have a say on this matter. In fact, listeners, if I'm saying I use a method to judge whether someone's telling the truth, just do the opposite. You'll likely be better at detecting lies that way. Well, that's a great start for today's episode because our topic is, I suppose, potentially part of the follow-up to lying and deceit. Today, dear listeners, we're exploring forgiveness. Before we start, I'd like to share that my mom and I recognize how difficult forgiveness is, especially after a major offense, and it's not as if it's any easier if it's committed by a stranger or a loved one. We really appreciate how tough it is, and even for us, it's not as if we've perfected the art of forgiveness. Right, Mom? But this is such an important factor to our lifelong well-being, and we all deserve to better understand the psychology behind forgiveness. 
To set the stage for us all, I'm going to share a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It goes, Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. All right, mom, there we have one definition. Can you help us understand how psychologists define forgiveness? Psychologists generally define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you, regardless of whether the person or group actually deserves your forgiveness. Forgiveness is the choice that a person makes to pardon another person for an offense or something that is illegal or immoral. Forgiveness is intentional and voluntary. When people forgive others, they let go of negative emotions, for example, vengefulness. As you have alluded to, forgiveness does not mean forgetting, nor does it mean condoning or excusing offenses. I think that's part of what makes forgiveness complicated. It's easy to associate it with a return to how things were before a not-so-great event. But that's not the actual meaning of the action or process of forgiving others. It's not synonymous with reuniting with them or going back to the relationship you had with them previously. Importantly, it's also not going to just naturally take place. It requires an intentional, deliberate decision to let go of those ill feelings you have towards them, whether they quote-unquote deserve it or not. I'm going to borrow an analogy I used during our episode on anger. I know I use quite a few of them, but this is the one about your garden. If you think of your overall health with a focus on your mental health as your personal garden, you want it to thrive, to be as healthy and prosperous as possible. In this garden, the bitterness, resentment, and anger you feel after someone has done something hurtful are represented by weeds. Those weeds might start out as seemingly innocuous and harmless, but we all know that's not the reality. You might perceive those feelings of resentment as harmless, but the truth is that's a skewed perception, and in all seriousness, those feelings are sapping from other positive emotions. They're depriving those other positive and healthy feelings of the nutrients they need to fully flourish. If we step out of the garden for a bit, Mom, what are the types of forgiveness that have been described? There are a few ways to categorize forgiveness. For example, psychologists use the terms state forgiveness and dispositional forgiveness. State forgiveness is usually used to describe the degree of positive thoughts, feelings, and intentions toward an offender about a specific instance of conflict. Dispositional forgiveness has been described as lasting resentment, sensitivity, and unconditional forgiveness. In other words, a person's dispositional forgiveness is the general tendency to be merciful, while state forgiveness is the pardoning of a particular event or person. In a 2015 paper titled, I Forgive You, But You Must Die, Murder Victim Family Members, The Death Penalty and Restorative Justice, three types of forgiveness were identified, restrictive, ambivalent, and redemptive. 
Restrictive forgivers gave psychological and or religious reasons to forgive, but they still supported the death penalty. Ambivalent forgivers were not as supportive of the death penalty, but had serious concerns about the offender's release and or their family's negative reaction if they did not voice their support for it. Redemptive forgivers rejected the death penalty as inhumane and contrary to their cultural, religious, or political values and supported life sentences over death. I really appreciate both of those approaches to describing the forms forgiveness can take on. I know you had a few more categories to share, Mom. Sorry, listeners, I voted against going into too many of the different forms, but if you're interested in the rest, let us know and we'll share. With the first category, psychologists use state versus dispositional. State forgiveness being the act of forgiving a person after a specific transgression, while dispositional forgiveness is our natural tendency to forgive in general. Then we have three other types that were described relative to a heinous act in family members of murder victims. Mom, as you were walking us through the three types, restrictive, ambivalent, and redemptive, I have to say they seem pretty generalizable and potentially useful even beyond use of the death penalty or this specific context. If I think of restrictive forgiveness outside of murder— I'd associate it with the type of forgiveness where you still expect to see justice or some sort of consequence for someone's action, although you let go of those feelings of ill will towards them. With ambivalent forgiveness, it's then letting go of those feelings of resentment and not even necessarily expecting punishment or the person to answer for their actions, at least not in an extreme way. But there's then the complexity of how this will be perceived by others, including loved ones. And last but not least, redemptive forgiveness is where you remove the need to see some sort of repercussion and also let go of any resentment you might feel. Okay, let's step back into our garden. Mom, I know I've already explained the importance of tending to our garden and being mindful of what we let occupy space. Can you provide a psychology translation of my analogy? How does managing our feelings of resentment and bitterness help our mental health garden flourish? Forgiveness is extremely important for our mental health. As the offended, forgiveness permits you to move forward rather than being stuck. The emotional advantages of forgiveness include an improvement in our general mood, increase in optimistic feelings, and decrease in anger, stress, anxiety, and depression. Over the last 20 years or so, Researchers have given increased attention to the links between the general tendency to be forgiving, in other words, dispositional forgiveness and specific mental health problems. However, few studies have assessed whether forgiveness after people commit specific acts that hurt us may be related to various psychological health outcomes. A 2017 study addressed this gap by taking a look at relationships between perceptions about the forgiving of a particular event or person and a variety of mental well-being outcomes. For the majority of their study participants, forgiveness of a particular offense had strong ties to participants' perceived sense of mental well-being, including a reduction in negative emotions, an increase in positive emotions, 
positive relations with others, spiritual growth, a sense of meaning and purpose in life, as well as a greater sense of empowerment. In another study, the relationship between forgiveness, depression, and suicidal behavior was investigated. Although prior studies had shown that increased forgiveness lowered the risk of suicide, these investigators found that gender matters. For males, but not for females, the relationship between depression and suicidal thoughts and behaviors weakened as levels of forgiveness increased. In other words, for males, the more forgiving a person, the weaker the connection between depression and suicidal thoughts. This was not the case for females. However, regardless of gender, research still suggests a close tie between higher levels of forgiveness and a lower risk of suicide. I must also mention that forgiveness also helps to repair valuable relationships and promotes personal growth. There's so much that I want to be sensitive of, especially when it comes to the relationship between our ability to forgive and depression and suicide. Although there are so many factors that contribute to a person's suicide risk, it's telling that there are studies that link high levels of forgiveness to lowering the risk of suicide. And interestingly, with this study that you've mentioned, gender can also influence this relationship. It can be an additional factor in the forgiveness, depression, suicidal thoughts network. I feel as if I'm walking on eggshells here, but in general, there seems to be quite a lot of research-backed support of forgiveness playing a positive role in our mental health and relationships with others. Let's shift to actions, those steps we can incorporate into our routine and maintenance of our gardens, beginning first with what I'd argue is one of the most important steps in doing so, and that's forgiving ourselves. Mom, what are some strategies for practicing self-forgiveness? When we think of forgiveness, most of us think of it in the context of forgiving others. However, I believe you need to be able to forgive yourself before you are able to forgive others. In terms of forgiving ourselves, it is important to take responsibility for offenses or mistakes we commit against ourselves. This is because intense shame and guilt, which are associated with not forgiving yourself, are not productive outcomes in the long term. As I stated in episode 34, shame is an inwardly directed emotion reflecting how you feel about yourself, while guilt helps you to understand how your actions have an impact on others. Engaging in self-forgiveness can be painfully challenging. However, the process can be extremely valuable. Crucial steps in this process are to own up to mistakes you make, determine why you made these mistakes, and problem solve as to how you can correct these mistakes. To truly own up to your mistakes is incredibly difficult, but I think it becomes easier the more you practice it. As human beings, not one of us is perfect or even close to it. And although practicing self-compassion is vital, you also should be honest with yourself. Along the journey of life, you're bound to make mistakes, but these mistakes can be learning opportunities, which is why it's so important to reflect and, as you've put it, mom, not only own up to the mistake, but figure out why it was made and troubleshoot. As you troubleshoot, also think through the lesson. 
find the takeaway that might make it so that you avoid a repeat occurrence, or if it's something that's bound to happen again, you'll be ready to manage it in a better way than you did the first time. And as we covered during our shame episode, remind yourself that you are not the mistake. You made a mistake. There's a major difference. Mom, what about forgiving others? How do we go about doing so? There are various models for facilitating forgiveness, forgiving others. Dr. Robert Enright, a psychologist, offers one model that consists of four steps. First, uncover your anger by exploring how you have avoided or addressed this emotion. Second, make the decision to forgive by acknowledging that ignoring or coping with the offense has not worked and forgiveness might offer a way forward. Third, foster forgiveness by developing compassion for the offender. Determine if this person acted out of spite or due to the lived experience of the person. Lastly, let go of the associated emotions and consider how you might have grown or matured from the experience and by even forgiving the person. The late Dr. Wayne Dyer also recommended another set of steps aimed at forgiving others. Very quickly, these are to move on to the next act, reconnect to spirit, don't go to sleep angry, switch the focus from blaming others to understanding yourself, avoid telling people what to do, learn to let go and be like water, take responsibility for your part, let go of resentments. Be kind instead of right. Practice giving. Stop looking for occasions to be offended. Don't live in the past. Be present. Embrace your dark times. Refrain from judgment. Send love. For those who might think, wait, what? Let go and be like what? Be like water? How does that work? Well, not to worry. I felt the exact same way when I first heard that phrase. The others are pretty self-explanatory, and I completely co-sign them because they're strategies that I use myself, not only when I feel wronged by someone else, but also when I do what humans do and make a mistake. During those times, it can feel as if someone has crossed a line that can't be redrawn. There's no going back, and there's no chance you're forgiving them. But in time, and with mindfully reaching for some of these strategies, you can find that the grievance you thought was once unforgivable isn't worth the ill will or bitterness. This is where the learning to let go and be like water fits in. I'll quote Dr. Wayne Dyer's description, which goes, rather than attempting to dominate with your forcefulness, be like water. Flow everywhere there's an opening. Soften your hard edges by being more tolerant of contrary opinions. Interfere less and substitute listening for directing and telling. When you give up interfering and opt instead to stream like water, gently, softly, and unobtrusively, you become forgiveness itself. Picture yourself as having the same qualities as water. Allow your soft, weak, yielding, fluid self to enter places where you previously were excluded because of your inclination to be solid and hard. End of quote. I get chills anytime I think of this or read the quote in full and this time is no exception. Okay, mom, I have one more situation that might be of interest. It definitely is to my friends and I, so hopefully our listeners feel the same. 
What about forgiveness within the context of romantic relationships, including for some of those major offenses such as cheating? With cheating, in that kind of situation, the choice to forgive the partner that has had an affair will depend on the cheated on person. However, research has shown that an important element is for the partner who had the affair to come clean and lead the work necessary for rebuilding trust in the relationship. This may involve the couple revisiting the nature of their relationship and discovering the reasons for the affair with the goal of addressing issues that will prevent an affair in the future. In a 2020 study, married and dating adults completed a survey describing the role of forgiveness in their relationship, detailing relational wrongdoings that prompted forgiveness, the perceived severity of the wrongdoing, and strategies used to express forgiveness. Dating partners tended to favor a minimizing strategy to forgive one another, whereas married couples tended to use discussion and explicit or clear strategies. Participants most often used the discussion strategy, for example, telling partners they had been forgiven to communicate forgiveness, especially following a severe wrongdoing. For milder wrongdoings, partners tended to favor minimizing and nonverbal forgiveness, such as hugging or kissing. The researchers found that married participants used a new potentially detrimental forgiveness strategy that they referred to as pseudo-forgiveness. Pseudo-forgiveness is a person acknowledging a wrongdoing, but not entirely resolving or addressing the wrongdoing. Pseudo-forgiveness has the potential to leave either or both partners feeling dissatisfied and appears to leave out some key forgiveness communication processes, specifically seeking forgiveness and granting forgiveness. Instead, pseudo-forgiveness involved couples in this study moving directly from sense-making to negotiating in the relationship. Pseudo-forgiveness bears some resemblance to what some researchers call conditional forgiveness. Pseudo-forgiveness. Now there's a recipe for confusion. It's really interesting the differences that we're seeing when comparing those who are dating with those who are married. The daters seem to opt for the minimizing strategy, where it's made to seem like a less significant offense, while married couples favored talking it through in full. Those married couples, though, were also more likely to apply pseudo-forgiveness, which seems to be the sticking a band-aid on a bullet wound approach. Maybe it's not that dramatic, but still, listeners, you get it. For both relationship types, dating or married, the severity of the offense seemed to make a difference in the action taken to show forgiveness. They tended to be more nonverbal for milder issues, while for more serious ones, explicitly telling the other person they had been forgiven seemed to be the favored approach. Before we wrap up, I have to know, are there acts that are truly unforgivable? There are situations when forgiving another person may not be the most appropriate thing for some people to do because they are no longer motivated to bring about necessary beneficial changes. For example, victims of sexual abuse or sexual violence. 
However, some people may respond to your question with a no. There are no acts that are unforgivable because everyone has the right to decide if they should or should not forgive another person. Those who take this position will give many examples of people who have forgiven those who committed horrible acts against them. They will therefore conclude that if forgiveness will make people feel better or feel at peace, then there's no act too bad for them to forgive. That sounds like such a diplomatic answer, mom, but I'll accept it. And with that, we're ready for your quote for today. My quote is by Jonathan Lockwood Huey. Forgive others, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because you deserve peace. End of quote. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for spending time with us. Yes, we want to hear from you. Give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catchingcurveballs, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, remember to follow us on Instagram for much more content at Catching Curveballs Podcast. That's Catching Curveballs Podcast. And as always, remember to rate, review, and tell everyone you know about the podcast. We cannot wait to connect with you soon.